Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Let me explain to you why I utterly failed at therapy when I first came home. One was I had just been through this incredibly traumatic experience that made me really question authority figures, obviously. And then, of course, I was exposed to an incredibly punitive environment where the therapists there, it seemed like their only job was to prescribe people medication to get over drug withdrawals. So I did not get any support from them. Plus, I didn't trust them. I didn't trust anybody. And so I came home from my experience feeling like, one, there wasn't a therapist out there who actually had ever interacted with somebody in my situation before. I had this sort of like complex in my head that like it felt like I was alone in the universe and this having happened to me. Of course, I was wrong about that. But it felt like when I looked up therapists, no one mentioned this specific kind of trauma in their bios. So I was like, oh, okay, nobody will actually know what I'm talking about. And even when I took the step to go and meet with a therapist who was a trauma specialist, I didn't feel like I was actually given a toolkit for how to process my experience or understand even what was the trauma that I did experience, because it's not like a bomb went off while I was deployed in Afghanistan and my leg blew off and like I was having nightmares about that. Like I had this weird, prolonged, all, tons of different traumas are happening to me constantly. And so you can't really quite pinpoint what the, you know, the nightmare is even. And I just I felt like I was talking to somebody for an hour and it cost me $300 and I got nothing out of it. And so looking at your book when it arrived, I was like, oh, the modern trauma toolkit. Great. Nurture your post-traumatic growth with personalized solutions. Oh, oh, that's what I wanted. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is, is Labyrinths. Today's guest is Dr. Christy Gibson, author of The Modern Trauma Toolkit which takes new theories in brain biology, such as the polyvagal nerve theory and epigenetics, and explains how you can remodel your brain to achieve post-traumatic growth. Before getting into the interview, we want to set the stage just a bit. 
because the word trauma has become a flashpoint in the current culture wars. As John Ronson points out in season two, episode six of his miniseries, Things Fall Apart, which we highly recommend. In that episode, John explores the origins of post-traumatic stress disorder as a radical new medical diagnosis at a time when the concept of shell shock was still predominant and soldiers labeled as such were often considered cowards. It was an important revolution in how we think about trauma, but over the decades, that concept has evolved and proliferated to the point where today on college campuses, the idea of trauma is ever-present, taking shape at times, in John Ronson's words, as the more conceptual trauma of being forced to read Plato. The concept creep of trauma is something worth worrying about. As author Scott Alexander put it in his essay, The Psychopolitics of Trauma, on the one hand, it's good that people who feel traumatized by things can have access to trauma-related resources and have other people respect slash validate their suffering. On the other, it might be dangerous to create an expectation of traumatic consequences for minor wrongs. Between those two hands, there's a middle ground where the concept of trauma is more expansive than merely the after effects of war or sexual assault, but not bandied about frivolously or worn as a badge of pride. For us, any discussion of trauma greatly benefits from a focus on post-traumatic growth, which is why we were eager to speak with Dr. Christy Gibson. I've been a medical doctor for over 20 years, so I did inpatient medicine, community-based family practice, and it wasn't until, like, I'd say seven years ago that I started to understand how trauma was influencing everything I saw and everything that I was at that point. And I took a super deep dive and I, I, I don't know, maybe I should have been a social worker, but I just studied everything I could related to that intersection of how trauma is showing up in physical, mental health, social health, like literally everything that we see and how people are finally talking about it. So I wanted to do something that was really accessible and really practical. I'm a systems thinker. So I've studied like social innovation, design thinking, and my my purpose is to get good information into people's hands that they can then catalyze in their own communities. And the whole idea was just to plant seeds and be like, you know, you've got your garden, figure out what you're trying to grow there. But like, these are some seeds you could try to use. And everyone's community might use them in different ways. So I'm not trying to be like the guru on trauma. I'm trying to be a person who's like, do you want a package of seeds? I hear you need to grow something. I finished medical school in 99 in Toronto. So it was a really, really long time ago. And we didn't talk about this kind of stuff. When I studied the psychiatry end of medical school, it was like, these are the meds that you use and these are the conditions that you diagnose. And even now, like a lot of years later, complex trauma, which is by far the most devastating risk factor for anything, didn't land in the big book of psychiatry we call the DSM. And it wasn't until I went to work with really low-income community, a lot of my patients had been recently released from prison. I wouldn't say a lot. I'd say like maybe 10%, okay. but, but that was uh, something that I became familiar with. And then I started to understand that trauma was the underlying factor for 
most things that I was seeing. And I'm talking stuff like diabetes and heart disease and kidney conditions, as well as all of the known psychiatric outcomes. And that research actually came out the same year that I graduated medicine. It was called the ACEs study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And it showed that for everything that happens to you as a kid, you have an exponential increase in all of these illnesses, including social issues like Hmm. poverty, being unhoused, using IV drugs, suicide. Everything that they researched was an exponential increase depending on how many traumatic experiences you had. So that was when I was like, how did this not change everything in medical education? Like it trauma was the root to so much of it. And we don't really identify trauma sufficiently or give people the tools to figure out how to shift their own responses. So my goal wasn't just to say like, hey, you've got this dysregulated nervous system. There's probably been some trauma, but also like, well, what are the causes of that? Like, what are the community-based causes and the society causes that are creating these traumatic environments for folks? And how do we work both at the individual and the community levels on that. Cool. Break down a term for me. What do you mean by complex trauma as opposed to non-complex trauma? So what you went through was complex trauma because it was multiple kinds of trauma over a prolonged period of time. So complex, like what you said, you know, there's that could be a natural disaster or a major accident. That would be a traumatic event. Complex trauma is when there's multiple kinds of traumatic events happening over a period of time. This definition doesn't exist in the psychiatric textbooks yet, but there is like a diagnostic code that physicians can now use. So there's this total mismatch around the way we understand and implement the term you know, kind of clinically, but people are talking about it. You Mm. know, I'm on TikTok and people talk about complex trauma all the time. For some people, it is equivalent to developmental trauma, which means things that happen in childhood, but not for everybody. You can have complex trauma series of events in your 20s or 40s. You know, complex trauma can hit at any time. Right. I can imagine somebody out there going, correlation, not causation. And also, aren't are we living in a world where everyone just has trauma now? And are we just leaning too far into trauma? Are we all just being victims today? Like, what do you what do you think about those who are really resistant to the idea of talking about trauma in the first place because they think that that suddenly means that we're all just broken people who are going to be inevitably dysfunctional? Such a well-phrased question. Trauma isn't actually the sequence of events. Trauma is your body's response to those sequence of events or your community's response to those sequence of events. So trauma isn't the thing. Trauma is your, your response to the thing. So you can have two people go through the exact same experience and one will have clinical symptoms of that trauma exposure and another won't. So trauma isn't just the exposure to the events, it's an individual or a community-based response to those events. And so I think that distinction is really important. So when we talk about complex trauma, we're looking for symptoms. So we're looking for how are you showing up? Are you getting triggered and flashbacks? So a lot of the things that we think of as PTSD are also in the definition of trauma. So if you're having um, intrusive thoughts, so those are flashbacks, nightmares, things that trigger you to immediately jump into painful past memories. 
if you are, they call it hyperarousal. It's a terrible term, but it basically just means that your sympathetic nervous system or your fight and flight response is easily hijacked. So someone taps you on the shoulder, you hear a noise, you smell something, you see a color. There's a, a, a day that kind of reminds you and that that sympathetic nervous system kicks in really, really quickly. And you're constantly vigilant waiting for a shoe to drop because you've already been through bad stuff and you're kind of expecting more bad stuff. So that's kind of what that part means. Feeling negative, like feeling badly about yourself. Well, there's something wrong with me because bad things keep happening to me or badly about the world. Like the world is unsafe, terrible things happen. And I'm just expecting more of that. Mm. So that's kind of the PTSD definition. And when we talk about complex trauma, that's when it evolves into like your relationships with other people. And that's when people often get diagnosed with things like personality disorder, because the the way that complex trauma shapes your beliefs about yourself in the world changes the way that you show up later in work environments and relationships with um, family, friends, partners. And, you know, we kind of pathologize it, but the newer way of thinking about trauma says, oh, these were adaptive survival strategies that you developed. And how can we work with you to understand which parts of them are still adaptive and which parts are just not working for you anymore? So we don't really think of trauma as being this like thing that made you broken. It's like this thing that your mind-body system created patterns to help you survive it. And now that you're kind of being more reflective and you can take an observer stance of all the stuff that happened, what's working for you? What's not working for you? But we don't really think of it as like something that went wrong. We think of it as like, oh, wow, that helped you survive. Mm. It's a very different mindset. Yeah, you know, that's super fascinating because it's absolutely true. From my experience, I've been I've been exposed to a lot of people who have experienced trauma and in the prison and outside of prison. And one of the things that I think is um, that you're you're pointing out here that is super fascinating to me and something that I've also been fascinated by is how people who have had the exact same experience can react in completely different ways, but also people who have had very, very different experiences can react in very similar ways. And I've I've always, like, the only way that I've been able to really try to figure out what that means is that Maybe some people are just luckier than others. They're just something is going, something chemically is happening in my brain that makes me not want to lash out at people and and or like self-isolate. And and for other people, it does. And like, I don't really understand what the chemical or physical processes that are responsible for those responses are. But it does feel like. I think that society really wants to judge the way that re we react to trauma. And for me, what I've, at least from what I've observed about my own experiences, but also others, is that it feels like a reflex. It doesn't feel like a choice. And so I'm curious to know, like, as somebody who is a medical professional, can you tell me or, or in layman's terms, which I think is what is happening in your book here, what's going on and why does it feel like I have no control and so therefore I can't take any credit or even be blamed for how I'm responding to trauma? You totally nailed it. So this is 
a huge part of my book is describing how it is a reflex. So our brain is designed to keep us safe. Our brain is desired to designed to perceive threat and then respond. And when we think of something as dangerous, the response is so quick, it doesn't even get to our thinking brain. So the amygdala is kind of the gatekeeper. We've got these two little almond-shaped lobes in the middle part of our brain connected to the emotion center. And as soon as the amygdala gets a signal that something could be dangerous to us, it responds really quickly and kind of sends the nervous system, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to fight, we're going to flight, we're going to freeze. So when you talked about people being like irritable or isolating, yeah, that's fight or freeze. That's a totally normal thing that our amygdalas would decide that we should do to escape a threat. The problem is, human evolution hasn't caught up to modern times, which is why I use the word modern, because our bodies were designed to escape a predator or escape a natural disaster and to have this like rush of adrenaline to get us out of a situation that's pretty quick and time limited. Whereas a lot of the trauma we're experiencing now can last weeks, years, or an entire childhood, an entire you know, relationship, our job, our interactions with racism or homophobia in the community. This is something that can keep our nervous system hijacked for a long period of time. And that's inevitably what makes us sick. Like if our sympathetic nervous system is on all the time, we turn off our reproductive organs, our gastrointestinal tract on our immune system pretty important things. And so like, that's why so many people will have these kinds of problems if they're totally spending most of their time in sympathetic drive. And a lot of what I teach in the book is just how to rebalance your nervous system, how to prevent it from being stuck in sympathetic. And you identify that there's something around chemicals, there's something around genetics, but there's also something about like, what did you learn? What did you see other people doing? What did you actually know how to do? So when I teach my you know, patients, these are different ways that you can bring your nervous system into a more parasympathetic state, which is more calm and more connected. Then they have those tools themselves and they don't feel so hijacked by that reflex. So part of the work is like, spending more time observing the reflex and the more that you can kind of notice what your own nervous system is doing. Deb Dana, she's a clinician doing uh, work in a particular theory called polyvagal theory. We can get into the science of that if you want to get super geeky. She calls it befriending your nervous system, which I love. It's kind of like saying, well, this thing is looking after you. It's trying to protect you. It's not your enemy. You shouldn't be ashamed of it. And you shouldn't also think of it as like this nuisance that's doing bad things to you. It's actually working really hard to protect you. So the more that you think of it as this like friendly force and not think of it as the enemy doing all these harmful things, the easier it is to kind of work with it because mm. that's what's possible. Yeah, there's this temptation to view our minds as this rational part of our brain and then the emotional part of our brain. And one of them is good and one of them is bad. And so we tend to associate feelings of of shame or or in just feeling like we can't trust our emotions. Like I, if I'm feeling something, and it's true, like sometimes I'm feeling something 
based upon a misunderstanding or a misinterpretation of reality. And so my rational mind has to come in and uh, and rescue me from my own amygdala. And I'm curious to know, like, a part of me is really attracted to that idea, that idea that there's some rational, better way of existing in the world that sort of suppresses or controls the amygdala or the emotions. But another part of me is like, isn't that kind of important? Like, isn't that really the basis of everything? And so isn't it isn't the amygdala in our emotions even the basis of the rational part of our brain? Like, how do I have a better understanding of there being a positive working together relationship between those parts as opposed to this the way that we're typically like instructed to view those parts of our minds as being in conflict? Yeah. And even some of the modern therapies do that. So there's this thing called DBT, which is dialectic behavior therapy. And one of the premises in DBT, which I'm a huge fan of, like the skill set is pretty remarkable, but I'll explain the two differences. So they talk about our emotion mind and our wise mind as being separate and that we should be really acting out of wise mind and and suppress the emotion mind because the emotion mind is the one that's the amygdala and the reflex and the pillars of dbt are awesome they talk about distress tolerance um, they talk about emotional regulation mindfulness so being more aware of your actual present experience instead of being hijacked by the past responses and interpersonal effectiveness like if we actually had those pillars taught to school kids what a different world we would live in. But at the same time, it it is kind of saying, well, I don't know, I think your responses are wrong, which is very much what CBT or cognitive behavior therapy is premised in. It's like, oh, you've got these ways of thinking that are not right. How can we adjust them or like reframe them? And what I love is the neuroaffective relational model, which is a more modern therapy, which is like, Everything that your brain is doing is a survival strategy. It's helped you get where you're at right now. And then we just want to be mindful of who you are now and who you want to be and just really notice all the survival strategies that you have from adult consciousness, like like this, this highest part of yourself and who you want to be. So I don't think of that as turning the emotion mind off because the emotions are what makes us compassionate and what makes us connected to other people and what makes us caring. Like if, if I was pretending that I wasn't sad about certain things that happen, then, then I show up like a robot doctor and I've done that and it sucks. Like, like in certain professions, you're kind of encouraged to dissociate from your emotions. That's not a human experience. That's a robot experience. We shouldn't want that. So I don't necessarily think of these two things as separate, but some people's decisions and behaviors are more guided by emotions than rationality. When we look at whether a person has emotional hijack to their responses that are not in their control is when they can be harmed and harm others. Whereas if their emotions are a part of their decision-making and a part of those behaviors, that can be really beautiful. It just, it it's around like your own access and your own agency around that. Mm -hmm. And when traumas have been really significant, you don't have agency. Like all of a sudden you're irritable or you're deeply painfully sad 
and you don't have agency around those emotions and behaviors. And that's when it causes you suffering. We could give you lots of reasons to support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? Hi, this is Canon. I'm a big supporter of the Labyrinths Patreon page because the work that these people do is really thoughtful and it's one of my favorite podcasts and Patreon accounts in the world. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. I think one thing that I also am curious to know if you also think this is true is I think that part of the challenge of being a human being today is not just being self-aware and managing your own trauma responses, but also being self-aware and not necessarily managing other people's emotional traumas, but like understanding them and navigating them. And I feel like one of the things that I, as a person who has experienced trauma, like every single other human being in the world, has often felt is that when I'm noticing that someone is reacting in a way that I didn't expect or or in a way that is negatively impacting me, my immediate go-to is to say, oh, goodness, like, what did I do wrong? How am is my trauma response having a negative impact on this person in such a way that they didn't interpret what I did in the way that I intended it or whatever it may be. And one of the things that my husband has been really, really encouraging me to recognize is that sometimes it's not my trauma response that's actually happening right now. It's somebody else's trauma response. And and then I'm in the position of like, oh, they're having a trauma response. Well, goodness, how do I navigate that? Like, is that it? Do I just need to like back away slowly until they realize that they're having a trauma response? Or like, does this toolkit that you've developed, is it just a self-awareness, self-navigation? Or is it also, are there tools in here that help the per- another person navigate someone else's trauma response? Well, I think... There's two things. One is kind of an overall understanding of the difference between the way that we tend to respond without a lot of grace is, well, what's wrong with you? When somebody's showing up in a way that we don't expect, like what you're talking about. Dr. Bruce Perry, he's a psychiatrist and a psychologist, and Oprah Winfrey put out a book, I think two years ago now. The title of it is How We Should Show Up When It relates to trauma, instead of asking, what's wrong with you, we would say, what happened to you? Mm. And that's a really different question. And I think that that's where the grace comes in. So when it comes to trauma, and you're right, like with climate and pandemic and really divisive politics, there is a very traumatic environment we're all exposed to right now. And so some people have had additional stuff on top of that, but we've all experienced traumatic environments and we are showing up in really Um, different ways in lots of social situations where, you know, we're, we're kind of having to manage it. I did put a chapter in the book around psychological first aid. So how would you manage somebody who's having kind of a panic attack or they're in a natural disaster and you're trying to kind of intervene? 
And one of the things I'm co-founding right now is a company that we would work with HR departments to help people understand how in a work environment, how trauma and stress is showing up and how you can manage that both as like an employee and also like working with clients or patients. I think that when you read the the book or you start to develop more of an understanding about trauma, it just becomes more obvious when you see it. So I'll give you an example from medicine. One of the super awful things that we tend to do is call people non-compliant. And there are so many reasons for people to not take our recommendations and advice and use it. One is that they don't trust us. They went through medical trauma or health system trauma. They were treated terribly because of their social positions or for whatever reason, sometimes medical people, we're taking our own trauma responses out on the folks we're supposed to be looking after if we were on hour 30 of a shift, which I've done many times. Well, hopefully not traumatized folks, but I've, I've not been my best self on hour 30 of a shift. So that can be a part of it is they're responding to the medical trauma and they just don't trust us. They could have social reasons why they haven't followed it, like their family life or work life or financial health doesn't allow them to do the thing that we recommended. And, and then a third thing is just they're too hijacked by their own trauma responses to get something done. So when you say, well, you've missed two appointments now, well, they just can't get out of bed. Mm-hmm. They're in, they're stuck in freeze or they're, they're so angry with what's happened to them that that anger is preventing them from being more effective in the world. And if we don't really examine these like root causes of why the behaviors are happening, we just like, ah, they're non-compliant. Instead of be like, I'm really curious and get humble about like, well, what's their experience in this? Mm. Like, what what are the steps that they're they're not doing? How much of that was me not communicating properly or like developing a plan that actually worked for them? And so we propagate trauma in health systems by using words like non-compliant when actually it's generally our problem that we haven't figured out. So that would be one example of like the medical system not really handling trauma very well. And so part of my goal is to get this book to like med students and doctors and say, hey, do you really understand what you're seeing in front of you? Like this person isn't acting in this way because of your hypotheses around they're just trying to be stubborn or whatever it is that you're thinking. Have you actually examined under the roots? Hmm. Got it. Can we talk about some of the tools that are in this toolkit? Yeah, for sure. I get accused a lot of the time of having like woo-woo tools, but it's amazing because there's good evidence behind everything that's in there. It, It might not just be like the traditional randomized trial, but what I put in here is a lot of body-based tools. And that's because we talked about your amygdalas. When your amygdalas are really active, they don't let your thinking brain come online strongly. So your thinking brain isn't accessible to you when you're stuck in that trauma response. So a lot of the tools in the book are body-based tools that you can easily do. And they do things like change the brain waves that are dominant. So if we were to measure someone's brain waves when they're really agitated and anxious, they have a predominance of gamma waves. And when they're really chill or sleeping or reflecting, they have more delta theta waves. So when I studied havening techniques, for example, which is one of the things in the in that book, I have a chapter and a video. I thought, well, how weird is it that you could just pet yourself the way you'd pet a dog or a cat 
and calm yourself down. Mm. But when I actually studied it, they put like a Muse headband around my forehead and they projected my brainwaves onto a video screen when I was being, you know, led through the technique. My brainwaves changed completely during the session. I was like, oh, wow, there's really good science behind this. Likewise, I do tapping, which is self-acupressure. And you know, acupuncture and a knowledge of Chinese medicine has been around for 10,000 years. And humans don't do things for 10,000 years unless they're beneficial. So while we don't understand the neurobiology of everything related to acupuncture, there is something to it. And they've done enough trials on EFT, it's called emotional freedom techniques, where you would just tap on different parts of your body related to the acupuncture meridians, and you can change your nervous system response by shifting the energy in the body. Mm. So there's good randomized trials on that. It's it's now an evidence-based treatment for PTSD. Mm. And so when I talked to a lot of physicians about the kinds of stuff that I've learned because I have studied so hard. It was like a full-time job for me for years and years and years. I'm certified in more than, you know, a dozen different modalities at this point. Cause it wasn't that I wanted to learn all the things because I have this huge number of patients I work with. My goal is to get this information to the people. Cause if you try to book with a practitioner of these things, they're going to charge you 150, 200 bucks an hour. And I just think that we're gatekeeping information that all humans need. And my goal was to get the information to the people. These are the skills that your body innately knows how to do. We've been socially conditioned not to. So I'll give you an example of one of the traumas I've been through. I survived the earthquakes in Nepal in 2015. I was uh, there with an organization that I co-founded that we do volunteer work with places trying to work on social accountability, trying to get doctors where they're needed. So I was living in Old Patton in the Kathmandu Valley in my apartment, and I was on my computer when the earthquake hit. And I remember trying to find a safe place. And when I opened the door to my apartment complex, all of the buildings in the courtyard had come down. And so all of the bricks were pouring like a river into the courtyard. Oh my God. And so I couldn't leave my apartment because there was nowhere safe outside. So I had to stay in a building that could just fall on top of me. So I I don't really know why I did it, but I crawled under a table and I held onto the table legs while the building was shaking and everything felt like it was fluid instead of solid. So like the slate tiles under me, the table itself, everything felt like fluid. And I remember as soon as the first quake stopped, because there was lots of them after, I think I was in more than 30 before I finally got evacuated. Like my body was just trembling. And that's a really natural response. It's happened to me another time when I was in a big car accident. So these trauma responses that result in a tremor through the body is is one of the ways that we actually discharge the sympathetic tone because our body is like fight or flight, fight or flight. And I'm telling my brain, I'm like, I can't flight. There's nowhere to go that's safe. I have to sit under this table and hope the building doesn't collapse. And because my body is trying to send all my energy to my muscles, I get a lot of tension. So people with who've been through trauma, they've got like neck tension, back tension, headaches, all kinds of muscular stuff because their muscles have these stuck desires to fight and flight at a time that they couldn't. 
And so when we have this stuck sympathetic tone in our muscles, we actually have to release it. So one of the things I teach in the book is tremoring. So that natural tremor that happened to me during the earthquake or the car accident, that's something you can actually teach your body to do. You could do it every single day and just release your sympathetic tone, release all the tension that your body's hanging on to. There's other therapies like somatic experiencing, sensory motor psychotherapy. These are ways that people actually complete an action that your body wants to do at the time of trauma. So a lot of times it's running away or punching or just moving it somehow to say, okay, body, like let's discharge this thing that wanted to happen because your body was getting ready to run away or fight and it couldn't. So let's actually do that now and let your body have that experience so it can let go of all this tension it's hanging on to. Mm. So there's a lot of body-based windows that I teach people, but in my mind, we've been socially conditioned to ignore these things that we already always knew. Like humans always chanted in groups. We did circle dances. We tremored. We had hallucinogenic psychedelic experiences. Humans have known how to process trauma for millennia, but because of like the pharmaceutical industry and the way that the medical industrial complex has gone, if you can't make money doing it, then like it's just not promoted and we're not even taught it. Mm. So my goal was to figure out, well, what is it that humans have always done? What we've already known about the way that we're supposed to process trauma. And so I've done my research. I'm not going to promote stuff that's going to harm you, but I'm just going to give you like this huge menu of options and you put into your toolkit what resonates with you, what works for you. It has to be personalized, but I'm going to provide as big a toolkit as I possibly can. And that was really the impetus of me joining TikTok was to say like, wow, there's a lot going on that is keeping people really psychologically feeling unsafe. And there's so much that you could do about it, not just within your own nervous system, which is a lot of powerful tools, but also what can you do around policy? Like if we don't end poverty and this dramatic worsening of inequity in our societies, there's going to be so much more trauma in the world. Mm. So we can't just address it at that one level, like that one person I'm seeing. We have to address it at these bigger levels too. And the more that you're not hijacked by your nervous system, the more that you can see these bigger pictures. to share a trauma response that I've had because I love that you brought up chanting and ways to sort of hijack the hijacking. One of the ways that um, my trauma ends up expressing itself is, and I, I maybe this is because I was locked in a room um, for four years, but I get super, I have a sort of claustrophobic response and I start, because I feel like I can't escape, that I'm trapped in a situation or a scenario, I start to hyperventilate and I feel like I can't breathe and I, I sort of just collapse inwards. And then, of course, the the hyperventilating turns into like this horrible headache and like weird back pains. And I just like everything suddenly feels really loud. And I just need like I need to be like left alone. Like that's how my response happens. But one of the ways that my husband has figured out how to respond is he has figured out to turn on at that point some kind of music that I can sing along to. Very often it's Adele. 
because like I sort of like can't help myself but sing along to Adele. And when I do, it starts me like I just naturally end up breathing in a different way that helps me reestablish a sense of like calm and peacefulness. And so instead of just like telling me, go in a corner and like meditate and breathe or something like just chill the fuck out. He just like turns on some music that he knows that I can't help but sing along to even when I'm in the midst of like a horrendous crisis. And then as soon as I start singing to it, I'm like, okay, (sighs) like, all right, we can deal with the situation. And like, those are the kinds of things that it's like, I would love for people to know how to like translate physical responses into solutions, not just for our own selves, because like we're not just we're not just islands in the world. We're also people who are interacting and relying on other people. And if we see someone having a a trauma response, like we're sympathetic, we want to help. But how do we help in a way that's actually going to really hijack the hijacker in all of us? Anyway, does, does that seem to square with your theories (laughs) oh yeah yeah like I have a whole a whole thing on music and breath and singing it works for a lot of reasons so I'll 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 do like the doctor thing first so when you're singing instead of hyperventilating you're increasing your exhale instead of your inhale so when you're hyperventilating you're not getting enough carbon dioxide breathed out because you're not exhaling long enough and that's what leads to all those symptoms that you get So when you lengthen your exhale, you're actually changing that balance from sympathetic to parasympathetic. So your inhale gives your body energy. That's the sympathetic part. The exhale relaxes the body. That's parasympathetic. So when you're singing, you automatically lengthen your exhale. You also vibrate the big sac around the lungs. So there's, it's called pleura and it's basically like saran wrap, but it's kind of this, like when you're, when you're speaking or humming can do it, it doesn't have to be actual singing, but when you're humming along with music or making a sound with your exhale, so like yoga breathing, um, I talk about Brahmari breath in there, but anytime you're making a sound with your breath and you're vibrating the lungs, it vibrates your vagus nerve, which is part of that regulation system. I won't get into the science around that, but vagus nerve maneuvers are hugely beneficial when it comes to being stuck in a response. And there's lots of different ways that we know that breath can modify the entire automatic or autonomic nervous system. So it gives us conscious control over something that was automatic. So you hyperventilating wasn't you in conscious control being like, well, maybe if I breathe really fast, I'll feel better. This is your brain being hijacked. So when you do something that's more conscious and you change that breathing pattern, then you are taking those automatic functions out and that reflex response, you're, you're, you're giving yourself some agency over it. So there's lots of reasons why it's total genius that your husband has found this tool. Um, It's one that I mentioned in a few different sections in the book. I actually talk about making a polyvagal playlist because sometimes people are stuck in that high tone, like wanting to fight and flight, and they've got lots of tension and they're hyperventilating. And sometimes people are stuck. They can't get out of bed. They can't get off the couch. They can't do anything in their bodies. And that's a very different, that's the freeze response. And then you would have a different music playlist and a different way of singing or using your voice to to get out of it. But what I love how you're illustrating it is like some people, 
if you go to, you know, a medical doctor, they'll give you an Ativan, they'll give you a Benzo and say, this is the thing that you're going to dissolve under your tongue and help you relax. Or you could sing Adele. I know which one I would choose. <laughs> and so it's not like I'm trying to be anti-medicine and anti-science, but I'm trying to say, well, what if we accepted all of the different ways that we know how to help people in their trauma responses? And let's be honest, some of them are going to be less harmful in the long run. Singing Adele? Not harming anyone. It's probably really fun. <laughs> Unless, you know, you're out of tune and the neighbor is overhearing you <laughs> no, constantly. <laughs> Still good. <laughs> Great. So what else am I missing here? Am I like, because again, I'm I'm sort of the layman. And I think one of the things that's really nice about your book is that it is designed to be beneficial to the layman. It's not designed to be written in these extremely academic, hard-to-decipher terms. What else am I missing? Is is there some other important thread that should be explored that people are overlooking? I mean, you, you've asked so many really good questions related to the points that I wanted to make. I think just that there's no shame in having these responses to trauma and toxic stress. So the word trauma is something that a lot of people don't identify with. So I thought about like, should I call it toxic stress? Should I call it like anxiety? But I think that for us to acknowledge that we've been through trauma and our body reacts to it, um, just think of that as natural mm. and think of it like, is it working for me? Is it not working for me? What else could I learn? What else could I teach my kids? You know, I've, I teach people in their 70s and 80s these kinds of tools. Like, I really think that the more that we get the word out, get this into school systems. I mean, imagine if we got these books to prisons. Part of what I want to do is to try to do like a, you could donate a box. Um, so you could donate 20 or 40 and you could donate these books to places where they're going to not have access to the information that they need. Um, I really think that there's a group of people who are constantly being traumatized. And then because of their trauma responses, the whole thing just compounds and it becomes really circular. And, and prisons would be a place where we find a lot of those folks. Hmm. And for me, it's about getting this into the hands of people who need it the most. It wasn't that I wanted to be like the guru on trauma, although I've read the books and taken the classes with all the gurus. What I really want to do is to just get the message out of like, there's so many things that you can do and learn and teach others. Uh, my goal was to just get this information out into community as accessibly as possible. I mean, I see these responses in really young kids right now. Mm. Definitely like Gen Alpha. Oh my gosh. Like what I'm seeing on TikTok, they're, they're stuck in these trauma responses and it's totally not their fault. And they don't know how to get out. Yeah. You know, that's actually a really good point, because I think a lot of people either individually like don't self-associate with trauma or they don't or society doesn't associate whatever their experience is with trauma. I'm thinking even like but like at the same time. Everyone has moments where they're not being their best selves and when their minds are being hijacked. And I'm I'm imagining all of the authority figures who like do horrible things to people like what what was going on with the police officers and the prosecutors in my own case? Like, were they not being their best selves because they were in some way hijacked by their amygdala? And like, I think one of the things that maybe I'd love for you to speak to is, OK, so 
I have a very obvious trauma. Yeah, that's probably part of what happened to me. But what about those people who are like, I don't have an obvious trauma, but I'm still an asshole. Like, what? <laughs> like, how do we do? Can they associate with this book? Like, how do people understand that if they don't even understand if they have a trauma? <laughs> like, oh yeah, and I kind of it's why I gave the the example of physicians. So we are highly traumatized individuals from our training itself. Like we're taught to ignore the need for food, the need to go to a bathroom, you know, the need to drink water, the need to sleep. We're told to totally disconnect from our body. Oh, and yeah, if somebody dies, you just go to the next room. Or if you give really bad news, you just go to the next room and you don't have emotions about it and you don't connect in a human way with anybody. This is highly traumatic shit. And we don't identify that. We, we just think of like, oh, we're the professionals, we're the experts. But we're also walking around as very highly traumatized humans. So Dr. Lissa Rankin was the one who kind of opened my eyes to that. Um, she's given some great TED Talks and written lots of books about it. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm a traumatized human in the world. And a lot of people in authority are also very traumatized humans. So police and vets have a sky high incidents of childhood abuse and neglect compared to the average population. Mm. And they go in there feeling like, I wish I had a sense of control. I wish I had some agency. I wish I had some power. And they find power because they didn't have it as kids because they couldn't get out of the situation that was harming them. So now they find power and they exert it. So yeah, these are a lot of heavily traumatized individuals in these positions. If they understood their own trauma responses and they wouldn't show up in those same ways. And like trauma is something that we're supposed to have. Like we're supposed to have the ability to fight, flight, and freeze. And we kind of do it day to day. Like if a car comes too close to us, if, you know, we've just been running on empty, you have a chronic disease and the disease is just draining your tank at the end of the day and you get stuck in a freeze response for the last three hours. Every single time you're trying to interact with your family, that's actually a trauma response. And it was designed within your system. So I'm, I'm trying to, I guess, normalize it and say, like, we're all dealing with it. Why don't we just get better tools mm. and the ones that work for us? So you sing Adele. Um, I tremor most, you know, anytime that I need to release some, like, really horrendous stuff that I've been through. Everyone has different tools, but the more that we have, the more that we won't be seeing people's trauma responses enacted on others, self-harm, suicides, um, substance use. I, I work in addictions and I work at the refugee clinic. These are two places where there's nothing but trauma, but it's also everywhere. It's in schools, you know, the kids acting out. If you could teach your kids some of these techniques, it would be a really different world in another 20 years. Mm. Yeah. And it sounds like it doesn't, it's not even like crucial that you do the talk therapy session to figure out what exactly it was in your childhood that was the source. It's just like the thing that matters is not the experience that you are responding to, but the fact that you are responding. You're responding in a way that is hijacked and you want to respond in a way that is self-aware and helpful instead of harmful. Because for me, like sometimes I feel like I don't even really care what the deep down like psychological thing that happened to you was. All I know is that we're having a bad interaction right now and I want it to be a good interaction. So like, let's work together. <laughs> yes. And so there's kind of three phases to 
to trauma recovery. The first is like being more present. So being in the present moment instead of the past moment. So they call that establishing safety. I call it noticing. And it's just being more observing of what your experience is and what your interactions are. The second phase of trauma recovery is around processing. So it's processing even like the big event you went through or the series of complex traumas. So with a theme for me, post-traumatic growth happens if you've processed that stuff. Mm. And what it does is it changes your associations with that memory. So all of those PTSD symptoms that I talk about, they're curable. So I use things like accelerated resolution therapy, matrix re-imprinting, which is related to the tapping. Some people do EMDR, cognitive processing therapy. I don't always recommend like strong exposure therapies because they can actually trigger people to get worse. But Some people have had good results with it. When I use something like accelerated resolution therapy, what I'm doing is I'm having you remember the thing that was really, really bad. And then we're going to change the associations to it. So generally people have emotions, physical sensations, the context is really triggering and we change all of that in the session. So now when you go access that memory, you feel neutral about Mm. it. You don't feel like, I'm really sad. I'm really angry. You just feel neutral. Mm. And so I call it leaving the pain of the past in the past. I think sometimes that's really important for people. So that is generally something that's done in therapy. And it doesn't have to be talk therapy. I actually don't think talk therapy works the best. Subconscious therapy works great. Psychedelic therapy has got great results for this. So there's lots of different ways you can approach it. And it's going to be different for all people. But if there's something that's causing you PTSD symptoms, you generally have to do process work. And there's so many options. It doesn't have to be uncomfortable. Like when people leave accelerated resolution therapy sessions, I just did a couple of them yesterday. They'll generally say things like, that felt like magic. Mm. They're not coming out of there like a wrung out towel. So Therapy has changed. There's lots of different ways that you can do the process work. And then the third phase of it is kind of like figuring out who you are when you're not hijacked by your, you know, trauma responses. Because for a lot of people, it kind of becomes their identity, those survival strategies. Mm. So who do you actually want to be? How do you actually want to show up? And some people are really terrified of not being who they thought they were. Mm. And they're like afraid to do all of the stuff. So that's, kind of the work that you might need a therapist for. Can you do phase one stuff on your own with my book? Absolutely. If you need more of the phase two, three stuff, or if you want to do things like internal family systems, I would say like work with a trained professional on that stuff. And it's a matter of finding somebody who's safe. So there are lots of people. I've met a ton of them on TikTok. They're brilliant. They're very trauma-informed. But just because someone's a therapist does not mean they're trauma-informed. And just because someone specializes in trauma therapy doesn't mean that they understand the more current ways that we we get trauma now. And that's really what I wanted to say is we've learned so much about trauma in the last 40 years. This is what we know right now. And just bring everybody up to date because not everyone is. Hmm. How can people find your book and follow your work? Uh, so on TikTok, I'm TikTok Trauma Doc. I'll be doing more on YouTube shorts under Christy Gibson, MD. And I'm on Substack as a tuned. My website is christinegibson.net. And the book website is moderntrauma.com. So there's lots of different ways to interact with me. I, I don't take patients on because I'm in Canada's public system deliberately working with communities placed at risk. But there's a lot of great folks out there. And I think the book 
can be a, a great catalyst for you or your family or your community to try to figure some stuff out on your own because we kind of are on our own at this point. Like the, the systems are not working for us. Well, thank you so much for all of your time, Christy. It's been a pleasure. I feel like I've learned a lot. Thank you. I'm really excited to, to get it to your audience. And, and it was awesome to chat with you. You're so, you've got so much self-awareness and you've figured so many things out innately. So that's a total joy. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been a wild ride. <laughs> Thanks for listening and for getting lost with us. You can find us on Twitter at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. You can learn more about our work and how to support it at KnoxRobinson.com. And if you're feeling traumatized by all the bad podcasts out there, try singing the praises of Labyrinths. Leave us a five-star review. Tell your friends. We depend on your word of mouth. Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. This episode was written and produced by us with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Captain's Log, Stardate 89361.5. We've encountered a fascinating alien civilization. The people of Patreon Prime are humanoid in appearance, but possess vastly greater degrees of nuance, compassion, and intelligence than any race we have so far encountered. But what is perhaps most striking is their generosity. Captain, the warp core is going critical. Warning. Divert all energy to patreon.com slash Robinson. <laughs>